This is Life with Catherine, sharing stories from my heart with a smile. And I'll even sing once in a while. Together, we'll learn more about the people who inspire me. Come along, Pond. This episode is on fairy tales, and it's not scripted. It's more my freeform thoughts. Uh, I have been watching different things on Netflix, and one of them I came across was Myths and Monsters. And it's actually the origins of fairy tales, and it's actually something that's been creeping up in my life at different points in conversations, and just how fairy tales are so relevant today, as well as way back in the past when they first started out. You have fairy tales, they're just f common folklore, the stories have been told for generations, like the Brothers Grimm and L. Frank Baum and, you know, things like Hans Christian Andersen. All of these stories come from a place. What they are is they, you know, you can tell your society how they feel, but that can fall on deaf ears. So it's almost as if they started as a way for society to all agree or use it as a tool to debate what are the society standards of the time? What is and isn't acceptable? What are the boundaries of um, fear, of love, of kindness, of love of your family, of love in the world, war, all of those things. They kind of dictate uh, what is happening in the world at that time. So for example, I learned that Snow White way back when it first started out was a story about a young girl discovering her sexuality and the big bad wolf represented the obviously the the bad wolf the person who's trying to tempt her and we're going to get into those stories but I also found, came across uh, fairy tales I've never heard like the capture of father time and uh, the tinderbox that my friend told me about Anyways, there's all different stories, and even, I'm trying to think of the name, Hansel and Gretel. Even Hansel and Gretel started out as a story that was the parents were the villains rather than this witch that they found in the woods. So we're going to go start at the beginning here. I'm going to talk about the Brothers Grimm, and then I'm going to go into some of the fairy tales, Okay. I took this from the fairy tales, oh, www.fairytalescollection.com slash the Grimm Brothers. Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, known as the Grimm Brothers, were born at Hanau in Hasse Kassel, Germany. Sorry about the pronunciation. Jacob Grimm, the second son, was born on January 4th, 1785. And Wilhelm Grimm, the third son, was born on February 24th, 1786. The Grimms were a large family of nine children, eight boys and one girl. Wow. Their father was a lawyer, and after his death, they set out to Cassel to attend law school and follow in their father's footsteps. The Grimms had been collecting fairy tales from the people of Hesse since the early 1800s. They had a favorite local storyteller named Marie Muller. 
1812, the Grimm brothers published their first volume of 86 stories and tales. In 1814, the second volume contained 70 stories. The stories were a success and the brothers were recognized for their work in 1819 with honorary doctorates from Marburg University. In 1825, Wilhelm married Henriette Dorothy Wilde. Through the years, the brothers were working as librarians in different universities. In 1838, they began the work on 32 volumes of a German dictionary which focuses on history. Within the next 10 years, the Grimms resigned from their teaching at the University of Berlin and devoted their time to completion of the dictionary. The Grimms did not live to see the final edition of their German, German dictionary. Wilhelm Grimm died on December 16, 1859, and Jacob Grimm on September 20, 1863. And this piece is from biography.com. Uh, influenced by German Romanticism, a prevailing movement of the time, the brothers robustly studied the folklore of their region with an emph emphasis on recording village oral storytelling that was vanishing with the advent of new technology. Jacobs and Wilhelm's work culminated in the book Kinder und Hausmarschen, Children's and Household Tales, the first volume of which was published in 1812. A second volume followed in 1815. Okay, there's talks about different stories they told. Despite the emphasis on village oral traditions, the stories were in fact an amalgamation of oral and previously printed fairy tales as well as information shared by friends, family members, and acquaintances with non-German influences. For instance, French writer Charles Perrault had earlier written a version of Sleeping Beauty known as Briar Rose in the Brim Collection. This is taken from an article written by Jessica Doyle called The Gruesome Origins of Classic Fairy Tales. Once upon a time, long before Gus Gus and Prince Charming, fairy tales were brimming with murder and torture. True Love's Kiss and Happily Ever After were child's play for the writers that came before Disney. Giambattista Basile, Hans Christian Andersen, J.M. Barry, and the Grimm brothers much preferred a haunting tale over a romantic one. But a few of their most harrowing details have been lost in translation. Do you know Cinderella's wicked secret? How did Sleeping Beauty really wake up? And what's the price for the Little Mermaid's legs? What happened to Snow White's evil queen? Do you know why Peter Pan's lost boys never grew up? Keep reading to find out. Cinderella can be traced back to China in 9th century AD, but the Western world first met the beloved beauty in 1634 when the story appeared in the Pentamerone by Italian writer Giambattista Basile. With over four centuries between Basile's story and Walt Disney's animated film, they were, there were bound to be some changes to Cinderella's tale, like skipping over all the murder and bodily mutilation. <laughs> In Basile's story, titled The Cat Cinderella, Cinderella's father was indeed a widower who remarried, but what modern adaptations don't tell us is that she in fact snaps her stepmother's neck with a lid of a dressing trunk. Sure, her governess told her to, but she's still a cold-blooded killer. Cinderella's conniving governess then marries Cinderella's father, widowed for a second time, and banishes Cinderella to the kitchen. 
Basile Cinderella is indeed granted a wish and attends a grand feast dressed as royalty. She does lose a slipper, which, though it's patent in fur, not glass, she is indeed pursued by a dashing king. In Basile's version, the lost slipper fits Cinderella's foot, and the murderer gets her happily ever after. In other early virgin, versions, such as Scotland's Rashin Coty, Cinderella's stepmother is a little more determined. She got, cuts off pieces of her daughter's feet so she might fit the lost slipper, or they might fit the lost slipper. In the Grimm Brothers' 18th century adaptation, Ash and Putel, the sisters mutilate their own feet and somber peck out their eyes. Lovely. The 1950 Disney film was in fact based on French storyteller Charles Perrault's 1697 ad adaptation. Perrault, a storyteller to the French court, removed the vulgarities and added many, many magical elements like the fairy godmother and the pumpkin coach. His Cinderella is pure and innocent as they come. Sleeping Beauty first appeared alongside the cat Cinderella in Basile's Pentamarone. Then, titled Sun, Moon, Talia, the 1634 story begins much the same as the animated Disney adaptation released in 1959. Upon birth, Princess Talia is cursed with the threat of a splinter. And when grown is pricked and falls into an eternal slumber. Heartbroken, her father lay her in a velvet chair and leaves the castle forever. Here's where things go awry. Everyone knows Sleeping Beauty was awoken by true love's kiss. But Basile tells a different tale. A king from a nearby kingdom happened upon the abandoned castle and Talia's lifeless body. Taken by her beauty, the king, well, <laughs> sorry, raped and impregnated the slumbering princess. In her slumber, Talia gives birth to twins, sun and moon. Searching for breast milk, a baby sucks the splinter out of his mother's finger and she wakes up. The king returns to see Talia again and is delighted to discover the fruits of his conquest. It's only a matter of time before the queen discovers her husband's infidelities and orders his babies to be cooked and fed to him. Unbeknownst to the queen, the cook hides the children and serves goat instead. When the queen attempts to throw Talia into a burning fire, the king intercepts and burns his wife alive. Talia marries the king and they live happily ever after as predator and wife. Whew! <laughs> it was Charles Perrault who introduced fairies to the Sleeping Beauty or Little Briar Rose, and he replaced the married king with a dashing bachelor prince. The prince's mother took on the role of evil queen, and instead of feeding the twins to someone else, she threatened to eat them herself. When the queen attempted to throw Sleeping Beauty into a pit of vipers, the prince heroically saved his bride while his mother jumped to her death. The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid was created by Danish writer Hans Christian Andersen in 1837, about 150 years before Ariel was singing Under the Sea with Sebastian in Flounder. Andersen's Little Mermaid endured a far grislier life than the bright-eyed Ariel we know, and her desire to be human is far more dramatic than Disney lets on. They say everything's better where it's wetter, but in 1837 our Little Mermaid certainly didn't think so. Anderson's mermaids were soulless creatures destined to dissolve into sea foam when they died, whereas humans were promised a beautiful afterlife. Terrified by her abysmal fate, the little mermaid wanted nothing more than a human soul, 
But as her grandmother explained to her, the only way a mermaid can grow a soul is to wed a man who loves her more than anything. And should the man not marry her, she will die. An impossible task for a girl with a fishtail, no? When the little mermaid spots a handsome dark-haired prince on shore, her desire to be human only worsens, and as desperate times call for desperate measures, the mermaid visits the sea witch to strike a deal. But first she must travel through thousands of polypi, or polypi, who cling to anything including skeletons and a mermaid they had caught and strangled. Without even asking her wish, the sea wish offers the little mermaid a draft that will, a drought, draft, that will give her legs at a high cost. I will prepare a drought for you with, with which you must swim to land tomorrow before sunrise and sit down on the shore and drink it. Your tail will then disappear and shrink up into what man mankind calls legs and you will feel great pain as if a sword were passing through you. At every step you take it will feel as if you are treading upon sharp knives and that the blood must flow. If you will bear all this, I will help you. As if the pain of the sword passing through her wasn't enough, the witch cuts off the little mermaid's tongue for payment. What follows is nothing but heartbreak. The prince loves the little mermaid, but not more than anything. Until, and he marries another woman. The only way the little mermaid can save herself from imminent death is to stab the prince to death, but she refuses, ending her life on earth and ocean. All right, so you can go read about Snow White and Peter Pan. It's a little dark. <laughs> this is from fairytalescollection.com. The Capture of Father Time by Frank Baum. Jim was the son of a cowboy and lived on the broad plains of Arizona. His father had trained him to lasso and bronco, no, lasso a bronco or a young bull with perfect accuracy. And had Jim possessed the strength to back up his skill, he would have been as good a cowboy as any in all of Arizona. When he was 12 years old, he made his first visit to the east where Uncle Charles, his father's brother, lived. Of course, Jim took his lasso with him, for he was proud of his skill in casting it and wanted to show his cousins what a cowboy could do. At first, the city boys and girls were much, much interested in watching. Jim's lasso pointed and... F Jim lasso posts and fence pickets, but soon they tired of it, and even Jim decided it was not the right sort of sport for cities. But one day, the butcher asked Jim to ride one of his horses into the country to a pasture that had been engaged, and Jim nearly consented. He had been longing for a horseback ride, and to make it seem like old times, he took his lasso with him. He rode through the streets demurely enough, but on reaching the open country roads, his spirit broke forth into wild jubilation. And, urging the butcher's horse to full gallop, he dashed away, in true cowboy fashion. Then he wanted still more liberty, and letting down the bars that led into the big field, he began riding over the meadow and throwing his lasso at imaginary cattle while he yelled and hooped to his heart's content. Suddenly on making a long cast with his lasso, the loop caught on something and rested about three feet from the ground while the rope drew taut and nearly pulled Jim from his horse. This was unexpected. More than that, it was wonderful. 
for the field seemed bare of even a stump. Jim's eyes grew big with amazement, but he knew he had caught something when a voice cried out. Here, let go, let go, I say. Can't you see what you've done? No, Jim couldn't see, nor did he intend to let go until he found out what was holding the loop of the lasso. So he resorted to an old trick his father had taught him, and putting the butcher's horse to a run, began riding in a circle around the spot where his lasso had caught. As he thus drew nearer and nearer his quarry, he saw the rope coil up. Yet it looked to be coiling over nothing but air. On the end of the lasso was made fast to a ring into the saddle, and when the rope was almost wound up, the horse began to pull away and snort with fear. Jim dismounted. Holding the reins of the bridle in one hand, he followed the rope, and an instant later saw an old man caught fast in the coils of the lasso. His head was bald and uncovered, but long white whiskers grew down to his waist, and about his body was thrown a loose robe of fine white linen. In one hand he bore a great scythe, and beneath the other arm he carried an hourglass. While Jim gazed wonderingly upon him, this venerable old man spoke in an angry voice. Now then, get that rope off as fast as you can. You've brought everything on earth to a standstill by your foolishness. Well, what are you staring at? Don't you know who I am? No, said Jim stupidly. Well, I'm Father Time. Now make haste and set me free if you want to run the, the world to run properly. How did I happen to catch you? asked Jim without making a move to release his captive. I don't know I've never been caught before, growled Father Time, but I suppose it was because you were foolishly throwing your lasso at nothing. I didn't see you, said Jim. Of course you didn't. I'm invisible to the eyes of human beings unless they get within three feet of me, and I take care to keep more than that distance away from them. That's why I was crossing this field where I supposed no one would be, and I should have been perfectly safe had it not been for your beastly lasso. Now then, he added crossly, are you going to get the rope off me? Why should I? asked Jim. Because everything in the world stopped moving the moment you caught me. I don't suppose you want to make an end of all business and pleasure and war and love and misery and ambition and everything else, do you? Not a watch has ticked since you tied me up here like a mummy. Jim laughed. It was really, it really was funny to see the old man wound round and round with his coils of rope from his knees up to his chin. It'll do you good to rest, said the boy. From all I've heard, you lead a rather busy life. Indeed I do, replied Father Time with a sigh. I'm due in Kamchatka this very minute, and to think one small boy is upsetting all my regular habits. Too bad, said Jim with a grin. But since the world has stopped anyhow, it won't matter if it takes a little longer recess. As soon as I let you go, time will fly again. Where are your wings? I haven't any, answered the old man. That is a story cooked up by someone who never saw me. As a matter of fact, I move rather slowly. I see you take your time, remarked the boy. What do you use the scythe for? To mow down the people, said the ancient one. Every time I swing my scythe, someone dies. 
then I ought to win a life-saving medal by keeping you tied up, said Jim. Some folks will live this much longer. But they won't know it, said Father Time with a sad smile, so it will do them no good. You may as well untie me at once. No, said Jim with a determined air. I may never capture you again, so I'll hold you for a while and see how the world wags without you. Then he swung the old man, bound as he was, upon the back of the butcher's horse, and, getting into the saddle himself, started back toward town, one hand holding his prisoner, the other guiding the reins. When he reached the road, his eye fell upon a strange tableau. A horse and buggy stood in the middle of the road. The horse in the act of trotting, with his head held high, and two legs in the air, but perfectly motionless. In the buggy, a man and a woman were seated, but they had been turned into stone, that they could not have been more still and stiff. There's no time for them, said the old man. Won't you let me go now? Not yet, replied the boy. He rode on until he reached the city, where all the people stood in exactly the same positions they were in when Jim lassoed Father Time. Stopping in front of a big dry goods store, the boy hitched his horse and went in. The clerks were measuring out goods and showing patterns to the rows of customers in front of them, but everyone seemed to suddenly have become a statue. There was something very unpleasant in this scene. A cold shiver began to run up and down Jim's back, so he hurried out again. On the edge of the sidewalk sat a poor crippled beggar, holding, on, holding out his hat, and beside him stood a prosperous-looking gentleman, who was about to drop a penny into the beggar's hat. Jim knew this gentleman to be very rich, but rather stingy. So he ventured to run his hand into the man's pocket and take out his purse, in which was a $20 gold piece. This glittering coin he put in the gentleman's fingers instead of the penny, and then res restored the purse to the rich man's pocket. That donation will surprise him when he comes to life, thought the boy. He mounted the horse again and rode up the street. As he passed the shop of his friend, the butcher, he noticed several pieces of meat hanging outside. I'm afraid that meat will spoil, he remarked. It takes time to spoil meat, answered the old man. This struck Jim as being queer but true. It seems time meddles with everything, said he. Yes, you've made a prisoner out of the most important personage in the world, groaned the old man, and you haven't enough sense to let him go again. Jim did not reply, and soon they came to his uncle's house, where again he dismounted. The street was filled with teams and people who were all motionless. His two little cousins were just coming out the gate on their way to school with their books and slates underneath their arms, so Jim had to jump over the fence to avoid knocking them down. In the front room sat his aunt reading her Bible. She was just turning a page when time stopped. In the dining room was his uncle finishing his luncheon. His mouth was open, fork poised just before it while his eyes were fixed upon the newspaper folded beside him. Jim helped himself to his uncle's pie, and while he ate it, he walked out to his prisoner. "'There's one thing I don't understand,' said he. "'What's that?' asked Father Time. "'Why is it that I'm able to move around while everyone else is froze up?' "'That is because I'm your prisoner,' answered the other. "'You can do anything you wish with time now.' but unless you are careful, you'll do something you will be very sorry for. Jim threw the crust of his pie at a bird that was suspended in air, where it had been flying when time stopped. Anyway, he laughed, I'm living longer than anyone else. No one will ever be able to catch up with me again. Each life has its allocated span, said the old man. 
When you have lived your proper time, my scythe will mow you down. Oh, I forgot your scythe, said Jim thoughtfully. Then a spirit of mischief came into the boy's head, for he happened to think that the present opportunity to have fun would never occur again. He tied Father Time to his uncle's hitching post that he might not escape, and he crossed the road to the corner grocery. The grocer had scolded Jim that very morning for stepping into a basket of turnips by accident, so the boy went back to the end of the grocery and turned on the faucet of the molasses barrel. "'That'll make a nice mess when time starts the molasses will running all over the floor,' said Jim with a laugh. A little further down the street was a barber shop, and sitting in the barber's chair, Jim saw the man that all the little boys declared was the meanest man in town. He certainly did not like the boys, and the boys knew it. The barber was in the act of shampooing this person when time was captured. Jim ran to the drugstore and got a bottle of mucilage. He returned and poured it over the ruffered hair of the unpopular citizen. That will probably surprise him when he wakes up, thought Jim. Nearby was the schoolhouse. Jim entered it and found that only a few of the pupils were assembled. But the teacher sat at his desk, stern and frowning as usual. Taking a piece of chalk, Jim marked upon the blackboard in big letters the following words. Every scholar is requested to yell the minute he enters the room. He will also please throw his books at the teacher's head, signed Professor Sharp. That ought to, ought to raise a nice rumpus, murmured the mischief maker as he walked away. On the corner stood Policeman Mulligan, talking with old Miss Scrapple, the worst gossip in town, who always delighted in saying something disagreeable about her neighbors. Jim thought this opportunity was too good to lose, so he took off the policeman's cap and brass button coat and put them on Miss Scrapple. While the lady's feathered and ribboned hat, he placed jauntily upon the policeman's head. The effect was so comical that the boy laughed aloud. And as a good many people were standing near the corner, Jim decided that Miss Scrapple and Officer Mulligan would create a sensation when time started upon his travels. Then the young cowboy remembered his prisoner, and walking back to the hitching post, he came within three feet of it and saw Father Time still standing patiently within the toils of the lasso. He looked angry and annoyed, however, and growled out, Well, when do you tend to release me? I've been thinking about that ugly scythe of yours, said Jim. What about it? asked Father Time. Perhaps if I let you go, you'll swing it at me first thing to be revenged, replied the boy. Father Time gave him a severe look, but said, I've known boys for thousands of years, and of course I know they're mischievous and reckless, but I like boys because they grow up to be men and people. My world. Now, if a man had caught me by accident as you did, I could have scared him into letting me go instantly. But boys are harder to scare. I don't know as I blame you. I was my boy, my boy, was a boy myself long ago when the world was new. But surely you've had enough fun with me by this time and now I'll hope you'll show the respect that is due to an old age. Let me go and in return I will promise to forget all about my capture. The incident don't, won't do much harm anyway, for no one will ever know that time has halted and the last three hours or so. All right, said Jim cheerfully. Since you promised not to mow me down, I'll let you go. But he had a notion some people in town would suspect time had stopped when they returned to life. He carefully unwound the rope from the old man, who, when he was set free, at once shouldered his scythe, rearranged his white robe, and nodded farewell. 
The next moment he had disappeared, and with a rustle and rumble and roar of activity, the world came to life again and jogged along as it always had before. Jim wound up his lasso, mounted the butcher's horse, and rode slowly down the street. Loud screams came from the corner where a great crowd of people quickly assembled. From his seat, the horse, Jim saw Miss Scrapple, attired in the policeman's uniform, angrily shaping, shaking her fists in Mulligan's face while the officer was furiously stamping upon the lady's hat, which he had torn from his own head amidst the jeers of the crowd. As he rode past the schoolhouse, he heard tremendous chorus of yells and knew Professor Sharp was having a hard time to quell the riot caused by the sign on the board on the blackboard. Through the window of the old barber shop, he saw the mean man frantically belaboring the barber with a hairbrush, while his hair stood as stiff as bayonets in all directions, and the grocer ran out of his door and yelled fire while his shoes left the track of molasses everywhere he stepped. Jim's heart was filled with joy. He was fairly reveling in the excitement he had caused when someone caught his leg and pulled him from the horse. "'What are you doing here, y'all rascal?' cried the butcher angrily. "'Didn't you promise to put that beast into Plimpton's pasture? "'And now I find you riding a poor nag around like a gentleman on leisure.' "'That's a fact,' said Jim with surprise. "'I clean forgot about the horse.' "'This story should teach us the supreme importance of time "'and the folly of trying to stop it. "'For should you succeed, as Jim did, in bringing time to a standstill, "'the world would soon become a dreary place "'and life decidedly unpleasant.' This is also taken fair, from fairytalescollection.com, and this is called The Tinderbox by Hans Christian Andersen, 1835. A soldier came marching along the high road, left, right, left, right. He had his knapsack on his back and a sword at his side. He had been to the wars and was now returning home. As he walked on, he met a frightful-looking old witch in the road. Her underlip hung quite down to, on her breast, and she stopped and said, Good evening, soldier. You have a very fine sword and a large knapsack, and you are a real soldier, so you shall have as much money as you ever like, as ever you like. Thank you, old witch, said the soldier. Do you see that large tree, said the witch, pointing to a tree which stood beside them. Well, it is quite hollow inside, and you must climb to the top when you will see a hole through which you can let yourself down into the tree to a great depth. I will tie a rope around your body so that I can pull you up again when you call out to me. But what am I to do down there in the tree? asked the soldier. Get money, she replied, for you must know that when you reach the ground under the tree you will find yourself in a large hall lighted up by three hundred lamps. You will then see three doors which can easily be opened for the keys are in all the locks. On entering the first of the chambers to which these doors lead, you will see a large chest standing in the middle of the floor and upon it a dog seated with a pair of eyes as large as teacups. But you need not be afraid at all of him. I will give you my blue checked apron, which you must spread on the floor and boldly seize hold of the dog and place him upon it. You can then open the chest and take from it as many pence as you please. There are only copper pence, but if you would rather have silver money, you must go to the second chamber. Here you will find another dog with eyes as big as mill wheels. But don't let that trouble you. Place him upon my apron and take the money you please. If, however, you'd like gold best, enter the third chamber. 
where there is another chest full of it. The dog who sits on this chest is very dreadful. His eyes are as big as a tower, but do not mind him. If he also is placed upon my apron, he cannot hurt you, and you may take from the chest what gold you will. This is not a bad story, said the soldier. But what am I to give you, you old witch? For of course you do not mean to tell me all this for nothing. No, said the witch, but I do not ask for a single penny. Only promise to bring me an old tinderbox, which my grandmother left behind the last time she went down there. Very well, I promise. Now tie the rope around my body. Here it is, replied the witch, and here is my blue-checked apron. As soon as the rope was tied, the soldier climbed up the tree and let himself down through the hollow to the ground beneath. And here he found, as the witch had told him, a large hall in which many hundred lamps were all burning. Then he opened the first door. Ah, there sat the dog with the eyes as large as teacups staring at him. You're a pretty fellow, said the soldier, seizing him and placing him on the witch's apron while he filled his pockets from the chest with as many pieces as they would hold. Then he closed the lid, seated the dog upon it again, and walked into another chamber. And, sure enough, there sat the dog with eyes as big as mill wheels. "'You had better not look at me in that way,' said the soldier. "'You will make your eyes water.' And then he seated him also upon the apron and opened the chest. But when he saw what a quantity of silver money it contained, he very quickly threw away all the coppers he had taken and filled his pockets and knapsack with nothing but silver. Then he went into the third room, and there was the dog that was really hideous. His eyes were truly as big as towers, and they turned round and round in his head like wheels. Good morning, said the soldier, touching his cap, for he had never seen such a dog in his life. But after looking at him more closely, he thought he had been civil enough, so he placed him on the floor and opened the chest. Good gracious, what a quantity of gold there was, enough to buy all the sugar sticks of the sweet stuff women. All the tin soldiers, whip and rocking horses in the world, or even the whole town itself, there was indeed an immense quantity. So the soldier now threw away all the silver money he had taken and filled his pockets and knapsack with gold instead. And not only his pockets and his knapsack, but even his cap and boots so that he could scarcely walk. He was really rich now, so he replaced the dog on the chest, closed the door, and called up through the tree. Now pull me out, you old witch. Have you got the tinder box? asked the witch. No, I declare I quite forgot. So he went back and fetched the tinderbox, and then the witch drew him up out of the tree, and he stood again in the high road with his pockets, his knapsack, his cap, and his boots full of gold. What are you going to do with the tinderbox? asked the soldier. That is nothing to you, replied the witch. You have all the money. Now give me the tinderbox. I tell you what, said the soldier. If you don't tell me what you're going to do with it, I will draw my sword and cut off your head. No, said the witch. The soldier immediately cut off her head, and there she lay on the ground. Then he tied up all his money in her apron and slung it back on his back like a bundle, put the tinderbox in his pocket, and walked off to the nearest town. It was a very nice town, and he was put up at the best inn and ordered a dinner of all his favorite dishes, for now he was rich and had plenty of money. The servant who cleaned his boots thought, they certainly were a shabby pair to be worn by such a rich gentleman, for he had not yet bought any new ones. 
The next day, however, he procured some good clothes and proper boots so that our soldier soon became known as a fine gentleman. And the people visited him and told him all the wonders that were to be seen in the town and of the king's beautiful daughter, the princess. Where can I see her? asked the soldier. She is not to be seen at all, they said. She lives in a large copper castle surrounded by walls and towers. No one but the king himself can pass in or out. For there has been a prophecy that she will marry a common soldier, and the king cannot bear to think of such a marriage. I should very much like to see her, thought the soldier. But he could not obtain permission to do so. However, he passed a very pleasant time went to the theatre, drove into the king's garden, and gave a great deal of money to the poor, which was very good of him. He remembered what it had been in olden times to be without a shilling. Now he was rich, had fine clothes, and many friends, who all declared he was a fine fellow and a real gentleman, and all this gratified him exceedingly. But his money would not last forever, and as he spent and gave away a great deal daily, and received none, he find him, found himself at last with only two shillings left. So he was obliged to leave his elegant rooms and live in the garret under the roof, where he had to clean his own boots and even mend them with a large needle. None of his friends came to see him. There were too many stairs to mount up. One dark evening he had not even a penny to buy a candle. Then all at once he remembered that there was a piece of candle stuck in the tinderbox which he had brought from the old tree, into which the witch helped him. He found the tinderbox, but no sooner had he struck a few sparks from the flint and steel that the door flew open and the, dog's eye, with, the dog with eyes as big as teacups, whom he had seen while down in the tree, stood before him and said, What orders, master? Hello, said the soldier. Well, this is a pleasant tinderbox, if, if it brings me all I wish for. Bring me some money, he said to the dog. He was gone in a moment and presently returned, carrying a large bag of coppers in his mouth. The soldier very soon discovered, after this, the value of the tinderbox. If he struck the flint once, the dog who sat on the chest of the copper money made his appearance. If twice the dog from the chest of silver, and if three times, the dogs with eyes like towers who watched over the gold. The soldier had now plenty of money. He returned to his elegant rooms and reappeared in his fine clothes, so that his friends knew him again directly, and made of much as much of him as before. After a while, he began to think it was very strange that no one could get a look at the princess. Everyone says she's very beautiful, he thought to himself. But what is the use of that is to be shut up in a castle surrounded by so many towers? Can I by any means get to see her? Stop, where is my tinderbox? Then he struck a light, and in the moment the dog with the eyes as big as teacups stood before him. It is midnight, said the soldier. Yet I should very much like to see the princess, if only for a moment. The dog disappeared instantly, and before the soldier could even look round, he returned with the princess. She was lying on the dog's back asleep and looked so lovely that everyone who saw her would know she was a real princess. The soldier could not help kissing her, true soldier as he was. Then the dog ran back with the princess in the morning, while at breakfast the king and queen, she told them what a singular dream she had had during the night of a dog and a soldier, 
and that she had been writ- that she had ridden on the dog's back and been kissed by the soldier. That is a very pretty story indeed," said the queen. So the next night, one of the ladies of the court was set by the- to watch by the princess's bed, to discover whether it really was a dream or what else it might be. The soldier longed very much to see the princess once more, so he sent for the dog again in the night to fetch her and to run her as fast as ever he could. But the old lady put on water boots and ran after him as quickly as he did and found that he carried the princess to a large house. She thought it would help her to remember that place if she made a large cross on the door with a piece of chalk. Then she went home to bed and the dog presently returned with the princess. But when he saw that a cross had been made on the door of his house, where the soldier lived, he took another piece of chalk and made crosses on all the doors in the town, so the lady-in-waiting might not be able to find the right door. Early the next morning, the king and queen, accompanied by the lady and all the officers of the household, to see where the princess had been. Here it is, said the king, when they came to the first door with a cross on it. No, my dear husband, it must be that one, said the queen, pointing to the second door having a cross also. And here is one, and there is another, they all exclaimed. For there were crosses on all the doors in every direction. So they felt it would be useless to search any farther, but the queen was a very clever woman. She could do a great deal more than merely just riding in a carriage. She took her large gold scissors, cut a piece of silk into squares, and made a neat little bag. This bag she filled with buckwheat flour and tied it round the princess's neck. And then she cut a a small hole in the bag so that the flour might be scattered on the ground as the princess went along. During the night, the dog came along again and carried the princess on his back and ran with her to the soldier, who loved her very much and wished that he had been a prince so that he might have her for a wife. The dog did not observe how the flour ran out of the bag all the way from the castle to the soldier's house and even up to the window where he climbed with the princess. Therefore, in the morning, when the king and queen found out where their daughter had been, the soldier was taken and put in prison. Oh, how dark and disagreeable it was as he sat there, and people said to him, Tomorrow you will be hanged. It is not very pleasant nudes, and besides, he had left the tinderbox at the inn. In the morning, he could see through the iron grating of the little window how the people were hastening out of the town to see him hanged. He heard the drums beating and saw the soldiers marching. Everyone ran out to look at them, and the shoemaker's boy with a leather apron and slippers on galloped by so fast that one of his slippers flew off and struck the wall where the soldier sat looking through the iron grating. Hello, you shoemaker's boy. You need not be in such a hurry, cried the soldier to him. There will be nothing to see till I come. But if you run to the house where I've been living and bring me my tinderbox, you shall have four shillings, but you must put your best foot foremost. The shoemaker's boy liked the idea of getting four shillings, so he ran very fast and fetched the tinderbox and gave it to the soldier. And now we shall see what happened. Outside the town, a large gibbet had been erected, round round which stood the soldiers with several thousands of people. The king and queen sat on splendid thrones opposite to that, the judges and the whole council. The soldier already stood on the ladder, but as they were about to place the rope around his neck, he said, that an innocent request was often granted to a poor criminal before he suffered death. He wished very much to smoke a pipe, as it would be the last pipe he should ever smoke in the world. 
the king did not refuse this request, so the soldier took his tinderbox and struck fire once, twice, thrice. And there in a moment stood all the dogs, the one with eyes as big as teacups, the one with eyes as large as mill wheels, and the third whose eyes were like towers. Help me now that I may not be hanged, cried the soldier. And the dogs fell upon the judges, all the counselors seized one by the legs and another by the nose, and tossed them many feet high in the air, so that they all fell down and were dashed to pieces. I will not be touched, said the king, but the largest dog seized him as well as the queen and threw them after the others. Then the soldiers and all the people were afraid and cried, Good soldier, you shall be our king, and you shall marry the beautiful princess. So they placed the soldier in the king's carriage, and the three dogs ran on in front and cried, Hurrah! And the little boys whistled through their fingers, and the soldiers presented arms. The princess came out of the copper castle and became queen, which was very pleasing to her. The wedding festivities lasted a whole week, and the dogs sat at the table and stared with all their eyes. The End What a strange fairy tale. I'm not going to read these ones, but it's so interesting, like some of the titles. Mark Twain has a fairy tale called Aurelia's Unfortunate Young Man. He has one called A Ghost Story. And the Brothers Grimm, you know most of those. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz. The Mandarin and the Butterfly. The Girl Who Owned a Bear. I love it. Aesop's Fables, which are very famous as well. The Wolf and the Lamb, The Fisherman Piping, there's so many. What I think is the most interesting is what, what I took from that Myths and Monsters episode was how many things, like the Pied Piper was the most interesting. I recommend watching that show on Netflix and looking at the Pied Piper one. It was fascinating about how the people in the town had too many rats, so they hired the Pied Piper to come and play his flute and then take the, the rats, follow him out, but then the townspeople decide not to pay him. So... He takes his revenge and plays the piper or plays the flute so that the children follow out. Well, over generations, that story changed from um, instances of just talking about immigration, emigration. Uh, it was young children fleeing. It was anybody fleeing. It was all kinds of things. As, as society went on, it was what is acceptable. What does society want? They were metaphors for everything that was going on in society. So it was quite interesting, the Pied Piper. So I recommend the, the show and just go dive into a bunch of fairy tales. I'm just not enamored right now, other than by Enchanted. I love that movie. But by the newer things, I'm really interested in the history around fairy tales and the history around everything and where they come from. A lot of things now are reboots of everything that took place in the past. But what did it mean at the time? Where did it come from? So I encourage you to go do it too. But anyways, I, that's just my theory of what was interesting at the time. I like the idea of other fairy tales other than Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and all those. So thanks for listening, and the next episode will come out when it does. I'm doing my best, and I really just want to make sure 
that these episodes are timeless to me. Timeless for you is a result of interpretation, but timeless for me as the creator and what I want to put out there. So thank you. Bye.